Do you sometimes get the sense that debates about America's role in the world are predictable and often disconnected from reality? Our new podcast tries to change that. None of the Above offers new ideas to help confront America's global challenges. Subscribe to None of the Above today. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. That free speech is under assault like never before. Now more than ever, freedom is under its most pressing assault. This is what organizing looks like. This is what building power looks like. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15. Armed with the media, big tech, and the global elite, the left has control over my generation. It's time to stand up and fight for my generation. It's time to fight back against the teachers who push critical race theory. It's time to fight back against the principals who don't let conservatives come to campus. We have to work together to do this, but it is a worthy fight. And we have no choice. If we lose freedom here, as Ronald Reagan said, there is no place we can escape to. Hello, welcome to Let Freedom Ring. And today... I have a question. Have you ever been gaslit? No, seriously. Have you ever been gaslit? And for those of you who don't know what gaslighting is, gaslighting is when somebody tells you that something you believe to be true is not true in order to make you feel that it's not true to make you feel crazy. This happens a lot in very toxic relationships. Well, if you're a Republican voter, at least in Georgia, you've been gaslit. You've been gaslit by Brad Raffensperger. You've been gaslit by a lot of members of the state house and state legislature. And you've been gaslit by management in the secretary of state's office. You've been gaslit by Dominion. You've been gaslit by liberals throughout the country. Because now, reports are starting to come out that tell the truth. They're starting to show that Republicans were right in 2020 to question the result. Now, I must be honest. After the November 3rd election, I was quite confused. I didn't know who to believe. There were so many Republicans saying there wasn't election fraud and that there wasn't ballot harvesting and that there wasn't thousands and thousands of votes that could be called into question. I was one of those. I was one of those Republicans who said, there's probably some gain of truth here, but there's no way that a Republican Secretary of State would allow an election to be stolen. There's no way. There were calls into Dominion. There were calls into the the signature verification. But I ultimately had trust in Brad Raffensperger. That trust was burned. Because Brad Raffensperger went on TV and told us this was the most safe and fair election in Georgia's history. Well... As it's coming out now, that's not true at all. And I also am waiting to see what happens throughout the rest of the states. So, in preparation for this podcast, I reached out to my former state senator, a man named William Ligon. He's a lawyer, 
So he knows the law. He was a state senator for about a decade. He chaired the subcommittee in December that hosted Rudy Giuliani and a lot of other people. And I talked to him for hmm, a good 20 minutes about this and to get his expertise. And he shared with me what their committee found. And I'll read it to you in just a moment. But before we get into this, I want to play a clip that calls out the hypocrisy from the left. You see, I remember a time when many Democrats pointed out how an election could be stolen, how elections could be hacked, and how that could happen. But then, as soon as Donald Trump lost, or so it seemed he lost, we... It, this it election security has never been an issue. So we're going to play this clip. I continue to think that our voting machines are too vulnerable. Our researchers have repeatedly de- demonstrated that ballot recording machines and other voting systems are susceptible to tempering. Even hackers with limited prior knowledge, tools, and resources are able to breach voting machines in a matter of minutes. In 2018, electronic voting machines in Georgia and Texas deleted votes for certain candidates or switched votes from one candidate to another. The biggest seller of voting machines is doing something that violates Cybersecurity 101, directing that you install remote access software, which would make a machine like that, you know, a magnet for fraudsters and hackers. These voting machines can be hacked quite easily. You could easily hack into them. It makes it seem like all these states are doing different things, but in fact, three companies are controlling this. It is the individual voting machines that some pose that pose some of the greatest risk. There are a lot of states that are dealing with antiquated machines. Right, which are vulnerable to being hacked. Workers were able to easily hack into an electronic voting machine. It was possible to switch votes. 43% of American voters use voting machines that researchers have found have serious security flaws, including back doors. We know how vulnerable now our systems were. We know, I know that hackathon that took place last year where virtually every machine was broken into fairly quickly. I actually held a demonstration for my colleagues here at the Capitol um, where we brought in um, folks who before our eyes hacked election machines. Um, Those that are not, those that are being used in many states. Aging systems also frequently rely on unsupported software like Windows XP in 2000 which may not receive regular security patches and are thus more vulnerable to the latest methods of cyber attack in a close presidential election they just need to hack one swing state or maybe one or two or maybe just a few counties in one swing state i'm very concerned that you could have a hack that finally went through so there you have it folks you just heard from many congressmen and senators democrats after the 2016 and 18 elections when they said that these machines very easily could be hacked and these aren't these aren't no-name Democrats. Ted Lieu was in there. Very high-ranking Democrats within the Democratic power structure were telling us that elections could be stolen. Now, I want to read to you a story that I found when I was reading the Judiciary Committee's report. Now, there's a lot of people who testified, but this is the story of Bridget Thorne. Bridget Thorne has, worked, has nine years' experience as a poll worker precinct manager in Fulton County. She worked five and a half days during early voting as a technician in the temporary warehouse in the Georgia World Congress Center. Because of positive COVID tests 
among Fulton County election employees, Dominion Software was selected to run the warehouse. Thorne was disturbed at the lack of ballot security. Test ballots were printed on the same type of paper as real ballots, but test ballots were not routinely marked as such or destroyed. Thorne testified she saw a stack of these ballots almost 8 inches tall. On October 30th, when early voting finished at the State Farm Arena in Fulton County, Thorne observed 40 to 50 scanners being brought into the arena and tens of thousands of ballots being scanned in by random people pulling ballots from random places. There was no formal procedure, no oaths, no chain of custody. When Thorne objected to this haphazard process, a Dominion employee replied, quote, It's fine. We've been doing this all week. When Thorne left that night, she observed unsecured suitcases of ballots next to scanners. Upon arriving at the State Farm Arena the following morning, Thorne saw that suitcases of ballots had been piled in a corner and sealed. But there was no restricted access, so anyone could have removed one or more suitcases. In addition, anyone could have opened them and resealed them because seals were easily accessible during the day. Employees brought Thorne other ballots that were found in the warehouse, asking if they were real or test. She had no way of knowing. The following night, when Thorne was again asked while she was working in the White House, she observed a Dominion employee in an election group consulting, printing test ballots, but doing so incorrectly. She realized then that anyone in the warehouse had access to printing real ballots. Before Election Day, Thorne attempted to report her concerns about these insecure ballot operations to the Secretary of State's office and to the State Board of Elections. She, she received no res- response. Since giving her testimony to the Senate subcommittee, Bridget Thorne has been fired by a consultant working for Fulton County. She was a whistleblower. She called out this way back in October, and she was fired. Now, during the recount, there was they were counting votes without monitoring or without meaningful monitoring. On Election Day, a video from State Farm Arena in Fulton County showed a Fulton County election worker approaching the media and poll poll monitors. After a brief exchange, the media and monitors packed up and left. This coincided with media reports that everyone was told to leave around 10 p.m. on election night. Workers testified that 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 tabulation was stopping for the night and would resume the next morning. Instead, video from State Farm revealed that About six workers stayed behind. What happened next revealed a coordinated effort by election workers to deliberately conceal their continued counting of ballots out of public view in direct violation of the law. This incident was premeditated. Those workers pulled out four concealed cases of ballots under a table and continued counting for another two hours. During those two hours, there were multiple machines running, each of which could process up to 3,000 ballots an hour. A representative of the Secretary of State's office claimed that it had representative present during that period, and the media reported the statement widely it was not true. The representative admitted he was not present during that time. It is not evident on the video. My my thing about this is, why would you tell the people who have a right, a legal right to be there when you count the ballots to make sure that nothing fishy goes on? Why would, you, why would you tell them to leave unless you have something to hide? That's my question about it. Because you look at it. This, is, this was my opinion on body cams for police officers, a thing that just happened here recently in the state of Georgia. My thoughts have been, if you don't have anything to hide, why are you against wearing a body cam? And many officers who I know 
they like the body cam because the body cam protects them just as much as it protects you and I, the American people, because the, the officers can't get falsely accused for something because they can just show the body cam footage. But on the flip side, I can call, I can call and report anything. If I see, if I see a police officer throwing trash out their car, if I see a police officer running stop signs, I can call and report that. And it will show up on their body cam or their dash cam. So that's why I've always supported this. So that's why I'm not sure why these people were told to leave. And that's why we've always had questions. And we've always been told, oh, don't worry. It doesn't matter. Of course they left, but it's okay. No one told them to leave. And though multiple people on both sides of the political spectrum have told us they were told to leave, that voting was going to end. And that's why I'm glad in SB202 it says that all ballots must be counted. In one foul swoop, there is no, I'll count three ballots this minute, and then I'll take 20 minutes off, I'll count a ballot there, there. You have to do it all at once. So definitely, and it looks like they're bringing COVID back into an issue, but definitely make sure moving forward that you have people who are willing to work in like four-hour shifts to be a poll watcher and a poll worker because it it looks like it's going to be an all-night thing from now on, probably until the next morning, so. Let's get back into this. David Cross was unable to speak at the hearing due to time constraints, but he submitted written testimony with graphs, one of which appears to enhance the significance of what took place with the charge in vote totals just after late night activities took place at State Farm Arena. Due to its significance to the State Farm Arena video seen by the committee, his graph is included in this report, and it shows that 136,155 votes suddenly appeared in Biden's vote column at 159 on November 4th. Scott Hall of Fulton County is an experienced poll watcher who has testified that there was a secured lunch area, but when he brought lunch for workers, they were not permitted to use that area. There were no cameras in that area, yet tables were set up for counting, and poll watchers were excluded. He has photographs of the area. He also testified that there were stacks and stacks of unsecured blank ballots, checks as he called them, that were in the open. Mr. Hall noted a limitation of one monitor per 10 recounting tables as being an inadequate ratio to truly be effective. He was constantly engaged in the recount, even being called to go to the World Congress Center at ridiculous hours, such as 10 p.m. for more counting. He was adamant that something was seriously wrong with how Fulton County was handling the ballots. Mark Amick reported that in DeKalb County, only one monitor was allowed per 10 tables of 16 recounters. He testified that monitors were kept six feet away and could not see the totals being entered on the computer screens. At State Farm Arena at the end of the recount day on November 14th, Susie Voyles of Sandy Springs observed pallets of ballots remaining to be counted beginning the following day. When she arrived the next morning, November 15th, those pallets were gone. It's also really important to point out that Sandy Springs is a very conservative area. On November 15th, Voyles and her partner, with whom she had traveled to State Farm Arena, who identify as Republican, were given only 60 ballots to review, even though other tables had thousands. Voyles and her partner, as well as other Republican monitors, were told at 10 a.m. there was nothing else for them to do, so they should leave. Since giving her testimony to the Senate subcommittee, Susan Voyles has been fired by a consultant working for Fulton County. Tony Burrison of Savannah, and a military veteran, served as one of the very few recount observers during the recount in Chatham County. 
He described the process as disgusting. Stacks of ballots were being counted with no oversight or accountability. Based on what he observed, he believed there there is a major problem with voter integrity due to tampering with the vote. Nancy Kane of DeKalb reported that she was kept too far from the counting to verify any votes. Hal Susie of Smyrna, a poll watcher at the State Farm Arena, testified that he was told that he was not supposed to, he was not supposed to be close enough to see batch numbers. What do all these have in common? All these have in common is the ability for something to be stolen. What all these stories have in common, these last couple of stories I've been reading, is they have it to where it looks like something was stolen. And we'll get into some of the evidence that reports maybe the election was stolen in just a little bit. But now we're going to talk about how there was no chain of custody for many and many of these ballots. Annette Jackson, a Gwinnett monitor, she saw broken lots, locks on bins containing paper backup ballots. Scott Hall of Fulton County was told to leave the World Congress Center after he tried to document and photograph nine unsecured bags of ballots. He testified he cried over the incidents he saw. Dana Smith, a Republican poll watcher in Hart County, testified that she observed the paper backup ballots being placed in unlocked canvas bags for transport to the county office of the election supervisor. The precinct manager finally, at Smith's insistence, obtained Locksford before transporting the bags in her car, but she refused to complete the chain of custody forms. Smith also testified that there was open access to the special paper used to print paper backup ballots. Hal Susie observed the recount process in two counties, Cobb and Fulton, at State Farm Arena in Fulton County. He reported suitcases full of ballots all over the place with no chain of custody procedures no time, and no date information. He observed people taking ballots out of the cases, counting and putting them right back into the cases. No one checked them in as a credentialed observer, and one man handed him a stack of ballots without knowing who he was or where the ballots were from. Then we get into the issue of some of these ballots were pristine. They had not looked like they had been folded. They had not looked like they had ever been in an envelope. This gets back to some people saying there were a bunch of extra ballots that were, eight, I think, eight inches high. At the State Farm Arena recount on November 14th, Susan Voyles, who, had, who has 20 years experience managing election precincts in Fulton County, reviewed a stack of 110 absentee ballots. Ballots are normally placed in stacks of 100 and noticed that they were pristine. They had not been folded and they did not appear to be worn as the voters and election workers had handled them. Each ballot was bubbled in with exactly the same marking, which showed a small crescent of white in the bubble it appeared as though one ballot had been marked and then reproduced over a hundred times. In addition, one of these ballots bore the distinctive ink markings of having been pulled from a printer too soon. Almost all of the ballots were for Vice President Biden, only two for President Trump, and her 20 years of election experience, Voyles has never seen any ballots like these. As noted above, Voyles has been fired from her position as a poll manager with Fulton County, presumably for her honest testimony. How Susie was also at the State Farm Arena, verified that he saw the pristine ballots mentioned by Miss Voyles. During the recount, Scott Hall of Fulton County saw large quantities of ballots at the World Congress Center that appeared to have been machine-produced. He stated that he saw this over and over. The subcommittee received evidence that other poll workers throughout the state reported similar instances of pristine ballots with no explicable origin. And 
none of this was enough. There was still a lot of hostility, as what I'll tell you about right now. Hale Susie of Smyrna testified that Cobb County was using an electronic counting machine on the first day to count the ballots, which was not an approved way to do the recount. The next day, it was the hand count process. He stated that on the second day, he immediately observed that the first auditor made three mistakes in two minutes, calling three ballots marked for Trump as Biden votes. But the second auditor caught those mistakes. He noticed the table was not even doing a double check at all. When he sought to observe, he was met with great hostility and vulgar name-calling directed at him. The subcommittee received other evidence of hostility against the monitors. What, something that also needs to be asked, and Brad Raffensperger should be called to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee or the Senate Judiciary Committee next session, is I want to know why he instituted an unconstitutional gag order so that monitors were told not to use photography or video recording devices during the recount. In just a little bit, Mark Davis will be joining us to discuss what he has found regarding the election. But I just want to go over a little bit of his findings. When he ran the national change of address processing on a copy voter database he he obtained in November, the NCOA data showed there were approximately 580,000 total address changes filed by voters in the database in the four years prior to the November 25th, the day he ran it. Of those 580,226 voters, 267 changed their address to a new address outside the state of Georgia. 312,000 showed changes to address within the state of Georgia. There's a lot of reasons in here that some of these ballots should not have been counted. There are a lot of reasons to it. And so the problem also for us, for Republicans, is that we're being silenced when we try to talk about this. Now, a guest I had on a couple of months back, David Belisle, who's running to replace Brad Raffensperger, and I hope I hope whoever, I hope somebody replaces that god-awful excuse for a Secretary of State and a Republican. When he put out a video explaining many things about this that did not add up, he was silenced. Here, let's play his clip. The censorship of conservatives by big tech has got to stop. I was recently interviewed by Newsmax where I talked about Georgia's voter rolls. I talked about the disastrous job that Fulton County did in the 2020 election. I spoke of facts. I spoke of the need for change. And I spoke of Brad Raffensperger's complete failure to do anything about it. As a result, YouTube yanked our video. Bit by bit, they seek to silence our voices to silence our dissent, and to silence anything that does not square with their narrative of nothing to see here. I need your help to tell the truth about Brad Raffensperger, to tell the truth about Georgia's elections. Donate today. Help me win back trust in Georgia's elections. So there you have it. That's a person who is running, and he's a serious contender to be the next Secretary of State. He lost uh, in the runoff to Brad Raffensperger last time, and this time it looks like he would win overwhelmingly. But he's being silenced because he posted an interview on a on a company from a news network like Newsmax and a news network I do interviews with probably on a weekly basis now. Because he pointed out what is being found is true. Many people are starting to agree with us. Many people as well. And another thing I want to call out is the lack of action come back in November. Now, it's no secret that Donald Trump is not a big fan of Brian Kemp, and many Trump supporters are. But I do want to share with you what he said here recently, because I do think it matters. 
he put this out a couple of days ago, three days ago at the time I'm recording this, and he said, I will not be supporting or endorsing Senator Butch Miller running for lieutenant governor of Georgia because of his refusal to work with other Republican senators on voter fraud and irregularities in the state. Hopefully there will be a strong, effective primary challenges for the very important lieutenant governor position. Trump's already proven that he will not be supporting those who did not support him in this. Trump's pointing that out. This was posted by a guy named Burt Jones. And if you know Burt Jones, Burt Jones is a very well-known state senator in Georgia. He comes from a very wealthy family. And he's been rumored to run for lieutenant governor. So it would be interesting. He apparently has a very close relationship with Donald Trump. There's also Jeannie Seaver in the race. All this to say, I've met Butch. And I like Butch. And I think Butch is a nice guy. But Donald Trump does not like Butch Miller. And why is that? Well, it appears that a lot of this evidence that has been gathered was known before the certification of the election on December 4th. And people who try to get the ear of Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger were seen as conspiracy theorists. In fact, that's what Senator Ligon told me. I asked Senator Ligon, well, when you pointed this out, what did they call you? And he was, he said, that many people called him a conspiracy theorist. We have a real problem in this country. Right now, about probably about 200 miles from where I'm sitting in the southeast corner of the state of Georgia, there are tens of thousands of people who are fighting to have a free election, to be able to elect who they choose. But they're not allowed to do that. But you see what happens when freedom is taken away from somebody who hasn't had freedom in 60 years, let alone people who think they live in the freest country in the world. I'm scared to see what will happen if a lot of this information comes out and a lot of people think their votes were stolen. I remember on the campaign trail between November and January when I was helping try to reelect David Perdue that a lot of people said they weren't going to vote because they felt their vote was stolen. And I used to say, you know, go to the ballot box and let's try to overwhelm them, whatever I could do to get them to vote, because every vote mattered, or so I thought. Because it's turning out that a lot of that there are a lot of people who probably voted in this election illegally. And something that I'm going to ask Mark about is the amount of people who voted out of county with when they moved out of county. See, if you move within 30 days of an election, you're supposed to re-register. And re-registering when you're already in state doesn't take that much time. I had to do it here recently. So a lot of people don't understand, oh, that wouldn't have changed the votes. For, you know, that doesn't matter if you live in Fulton County and you vote for Biden or you live in Chatham County and you vote for Biden. But what it does call into question are some of these congressional races. I guess we had on just about a week and a half ago, and Rich McCormick, he lost what used to be a very red district by just a few points, by maybe a couple of thousand votes. So imagine how many of those 30,000 people moved out of Gwinnett. Gwinnett's one of the bigger counties in Georgia, so a lot of people probably did move out of Gwinnett County and voted in Gwinnett. And that very easily could have, could have pushed Carolyn Bordeaux over the edge. Now, I don't know, and I haven't been able to do the research, and that's why I'm, I invited Mark Davis on, and he'll be on just a few minutes, 
But one thing that I do want answered is what happens if we prove? What happens if there's undeniable evidence that there was voter fraud and that this election went to Donald Trump? What if? What would happen? Obviously, you need to prove it in Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. But what happens if we do? Would Donald Trump be reinstated as president? Would he be? Or would this just have to, would we just have to understand that an election was stolen and we elected a guy who probably doesn't know what today's date is? What happens to David Perdue if it's, David Perdue lost by, he needed 8,000 more votes. What if, we, what if it's shown that there were 8,000 votes for John Ossoff that shouldn't count? Would David Perdue win? I don't know. How would this work? Would Kelly Leffler get reinstated? How would this work? I can tell you, I would love any way to be able to get Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff out of office. Right now, I'm only being represented by one congressman, a congressman who's coming on later this week, or early next week, hopefully. We have a real problem brewing right now in this country. Because if people feel like their vote is not mattering, January 6th will just be a foreshadowing event to what is to follow. Look what happened when people, when just a small group of people thought they weren't being listened to. Now imagine what will happen if millions and millions of people don't believe their votes mattered and that their election was stolen. You're talking civil war numbers. We need to get to the bottom of this. We need to do it sooner rather than later. Joining us now is Mark Davis. Mark is the president of Data Productions Incorporated and has been working with voter data in Georgia for 35 years. He has served as an expert witness in voter data analytics and disputed election cases five times over the last 20 years. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Noah, how are you doing? Good to be with you. It's great to be with you too, Mark. So, so Mark, explain to people a little bit who may have no idea. I mean, I, I we're connected on social media, so I've seen your post over the last couple of months. But explain to people kind of what what you've been doing and what you've been working on. Well, to give you some background, um, I've been working with voter data for about 35 years, and I've been an advocate for election integrity for about 20 years. And for that reason... I've testified as an expert witness in um, five election cases over the last 20 years. And the reason I do that is to try to bring attention to issues relating to election integrity, residency issues, redistricting issues, um, absentee ballot fraud, um, all of that kind of stuff. I've I've seen it all in in various courtrooms. So after the November general election, I was trying to figure out what happened. So I started doing some of the analysis that I normally do in these smaller cases, um, but on a statewide basis. And when I did that, I discovered an awful lot of folks had voted with what appear to be serious residency issues. And that analysis was part of the Trump lawsuit that never got heard. And I never quit working on these issues. Um, I got an update to the voter file back in May, and when I did, I compared that voter file to the national change of address processing that I had run in November, and what I discovered was that thousands of voters were 
coming in after the election and formally updating their own registration addresses to the exact same address that they gave the post office before they moved. And the reason this stuff is important is because under Georgia law, if you move outside the state and it's a permanent change of residency, then you can't vote here anymore. Of the folks who who move within the state to a new permanent address, if they move within the county, they can just update their registration and, and go ahead and vote. But if you move across county lines, uh, and it even says this right on the Secretary of State's registration page, uh, it says if you move across county lines, you have to re-register before the deadline or you can't vote in that election. And to quote you the statutes on this, I would cite 21-2-217, Section A, Paragraph 6, which says if you move to a new county and that's a permanent change of address, you have lost your residency in your old county and you have to re-register in your new county. Um, then if you check 21-2-218 uh, E and F, <clears throat> what they basically say is there's a 30-day grace period. So if you move within 30 days of an election, you can still vote in your old county. But if you moved longer than 30 days before the election, um, you can't vote in your new county unless you have actually registered there, and you can't go back and vote in your old county either. Um, Section F of that statute plainly states that we can only cast ballots outside of that 30-day grace period. We can only cast ballots in the county that we live in. Now, if you step back and think about the reason these laws exist, it's basically to keep folks from voting for the wrong people. Uh, for example, um, of the folks that have basically confirmed their NCOA information, there's about 10,300 of those, 94% uh, of them would have been offered the opportunity to vote in a state house district they don't live in, 86.5% in a state senate district they don't live in, and about 64% in a congressional district they don't live in. So that preventing that kind of stuff is the reason that these laws exist. Right, which is very important. That's what a lot of people are looking at, and they go, they look at it and they go, well, what does it matter if somebody voted in Fulton County versus Chatham County versus Camden County uh, if they're still voting for the two senators and, and the presidency? And it's Well, it gets a little bit more, more dicey than that. I was looking into earlier in the podcast – uh, Rich McCormick's race in GA7, I mean, that was a race that was lost by a couple thousand votes in a very big county, which is Gwinnett. And I would assume that a lot of these people who moved out of out of county and voted, presumably some of them are from Gwinnett County, which is one of the bigger counties in the state. So I was looking, I was looking at one of those instances that just this morning. I was looking at a voter record where, you know, they would have been offered a ballot in that 7th district race when they actually lived right. in the 5th district. Right. No, you're 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 100% correct. So, you know, when I'm looking over the data that that you sent me, I mean, there are some of these numbers that I'm seeing are are are, are outrageous. Um one of these things say something around uh there were 267,000 who changed the address outside of the state of Georgia. I mean, are, are these people who potentially voted and just didn't tell us? Or how exactly does, does something like does this work? Explain it for people who, like me, who don't understand as much about election and addresses as, as you do. Okay. Well, out of, out of the folks who moved out of the state, 
there were about 15,000 or so that, that voted here. Now, if those are students or members of the military or you know other people who left the state for temporary purposes, then those, those ballots were lawful. So <clears throat> we don't really have any way of knowing the difference um, between the folks that you know, voted lawfully in those circumstances and the folks that may not have, you know, and in the absentee voter file, you know, we had a whole lot of absentee ballots where their residency was still based here in Georgia, but the ballots were sent out of state. So <clears throat> I do have concerns about the residency of those folks, but it's a lot harder to establish. The folks who moved within the state from one county to another and failed to re-register you know, those, those issues to me are, are more clear, but, you know, they still need to be investigated uh, based on NCOA data and, and the uh, voter data alone, you know, that's not enough to conclude, yeah, this person definitely broke the law because that's what investigations are for. And that's why I took the data and I turned it over to the secretary of state because it's, it's really up to our elections officials and our law enforcement to determine who did and did not break the law and, and what should be done about that. Right. And when, when did you have, when did you start getting evidence uh, of these people who either moved to different counties, different districts, different States? When did you start to get this data? In November. Uh, but I've continued to work on it because the count of people who have updated their addresses to the same address they gave the post office when they moved originally, that count keeps going up. And so I'm, I'm going to keep pulling voter files and keep doing this analysis, just keep repeating it because that number's only gonna go up. And if you look at 21-2-234, it mandates that the Secretary of State's office do their list cleanup in the first six months of every odd year. And of course, we've just finished that period for 2021 and the counties have received training material on how to process uh, change of address confirmations which are coming in and so what's going to happen is you know the secretary of state ran in coa they they have mailed confirmation letters to people that had changes of address to to confirm those changes of address and they'll be receiving those back and so there'll be a lot of updating going on on the voter database. And so that that 10,000 number uh, of the folks who have confirmed their own changes of address with their own registration, that number is just going to keep climbing. And so I'll continue to, to pull that. But I, I want to back up and, <clears throat> and bring up, you know, a, a really important point here. While I am very concerned that, you know, tens of thousands of, of voters here may have actually cast unlawful ballots in counties that they don't live in. I'm equally concerned about the rest of them because there were about 110,000 voters that the data indicates were in this situation. In other words, they had moved from County A to County B more than 30 days before the election and had not updated their registration when the deadline for registration came and went. So those folks found themselves in, a, in an untenable situation of their own making. They had lost their residency in their old county, and they were unregistered in their new county. So they were in a situation where they, they, 
didn't have a lawful right to a ballot at all, uh, whether statewide races or not. I mean, under the law, there's no distinction. Um, so these folks really were in a pickle. The vast majority of them did not choose to return to their old county and show them a, a driver's license that hadn't been updated and attempt to vote. The vast majority of these people did not do that. So <clears throat> my concern is for both groups, because what this means is <clears throat> that folks who broke the law got to vote and folks who obeyed the law didn't. And to me, that that's just unconscionable. And since raising this issue, there's a narrative coming out of the Secretary of State's office that's just laughable. Um, you know, Raffensperger made a statement that says, you know, he's glad that Davis and the Federalist and Congressional Republicans who could have done something about this before the election are finally coming around to seeing things his way on, on the 1993 National Voter Registration Act. I read that and I just literally busted out laughing. Because the very first time Brad Raffensperger ever even heard about the 1993 NVRA was in a conference call that his political consultant, Mark Roundtree, arranged so that Brad and I could talk about the 1993 NVRA and I could tell him why it's a problem. And that statement just literally busted me up. Just the, the gall, I mean, the nerve. But anyway, so that's their narrative. They're basically are saying, well, there's nothing we can do about this problem because of the NVRA and we're just going to have to accept, you know, a certain level of, of these votes, you know, and Gabe went on TV the other day on channel two. And he's like, these are just Georgia voters trying to exercise their right to vote in uncertain times. You know, he's basically just dismissing it. And, you know, the thing is, these issues are preventable. Um, the 1993 NVRA does prohibit the Secretary of State from doing list maintenance within 90 days of a federal election. They're absolutely correct about that, but that's not what we're talking about here. What I have suggested is that the Secretary of State's office should run in COA and do the same analysis that I did as we're approaching a major election, and then identify folks that, that appear to have potential residency issues and then encourage them to jump online, take a few minutes and update their own registrations, okay? When a voter updates their own registration, you know, we tell voters all the time ahead of elections, hey, be sure you jump online and check your registration, make sure everything's current and you're good to go. You know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I don't see anything wrong with the Secretary of State encouraging voters to do that either. And I don't see how that constitutes list maintenance when the Secretary of State's office isn't using the NCOA information to alter a single record, not a single byte of a single record. Those, those updates would be coming from the voters themselves, and I don't see any legal barrier to voters you know, making sure their own registration is current before the election. So this narrative that's coming out, to me, just doesn't hold water. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And you know, I, I remember getting a list from Derek Somerville, who I'm sure you, you know, um, and he it was a list of people from my county who I guess had filed that change of address form, and I was on the list because I'd I'd filed it to uh, to get mail at my college instead of you know where I reside, like where my domicile is. Um, so let, let's get into. Uh, I think it's safe to say that you're not voting for Brad Raffensperger, me either. 
Um, so let's get into kind of the Trump Raffensperger phone call. Um, because now it turns out there are a lot of things that Trump said during that call that potentially he was correct on. Uh, Not only that, but if you know the background, you'll see a lot more in the transcript of that call than you see now. Uh, Here's the deal. So, as I mentioned earlier, pardon me, I've got a cough today. The, uh, The analysis that I did was part of the Trump lawsuit. So, I had briefed the Trump attorneys on the analysis. In fact, um, I even got a call from White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows one day, and I spent about 15 minutes briefing him on it. So, you know, the the Trump side of that phone call was very aware of the analysis going into that call. And if you pull up the transcript and you scroll down about three quarters of the way down to the point where... Kurt Hilbert starts speaking. He kind of he kind of breaks into the conversation. And he starts speaking. What he's talking about there <clears throat> is this analysis. Um, there's a part in there where they bring up the number twenty four thousand something that came from um, an auditor. I worked with that auditor, and he had he had reviewed the data that I had generated, and he had concluded that it had merit, but. The issue we had was with folks like you who had filed a permanent change of address for a long-term temporary move. And that's really your only option if you're going somewhere for over a year because you can't file a a temporary change of address for more than a year. And so, you know, we've always known and always said that there's going to be some amount of of those folks on the list and that, you know, the only way to, to determine you know, who they are is, you know, through an investigation, which is why I gave the Secretary of State the data. So, anyway, um, that number that he gave was somewhat arbitrary. What he's basically saying is, look, you know, even if, you know, 10,000 or more of these folks um, were actual temporary changes of address, that still leaves about 24,000 on the table, which is about double what it would you know, what we would need to to place the outcome of the presidential election in doubt. So he was basically saying that, you know, even if there's some very large number of uh, t- temporary changes of address in the file, you know, that need to be excluded, then the data set still has merit. It still shows that, uh, you know, the data indicates that, that there may have been thousands and thousands of unlawful ballots cast, more than the margin between the candidates. And I want to be clear about the way that kind of stuff is adjudicated in Georgia. You know, we have secret ballots. So who people voted for is largely irrelevant. Because what a judge is going to do is he's going to look at the number of illegal, irregular, or wrongfully rejected ballots He's going to add up all the individual situations where he sees that. And if that number exceeds the margin between the candidates, then that would place the outcome of the election in doubt. The other way he can do it is if he sees enough systemic irregularities to cast an election in doubt. Now, in the last case I testified in, I watched the judge ask every lawyer in the room, you know, can any of you give me a definition for systemic irregularities? And they all took a swing at it, but they were just speaking off the cuff. Well, 
these issues absolutely were systemic. They happened in every single county in the state. They happened in every House district, every state Senate district, and every congressional district in the state. If that's not systemic, somebody please tell me what is. I mean, these folks, they could have voted for sheriffs, county commissioners, and school board members that don't represent them. They could have voted for tax increases that they'll never have to pay. I mean, these issues were, were pervasive all over the state, affecting, you know, races and election contests all over the state. I don't know how you get more systemic than that. So, in other words, I think if the Trump lawsuit had actually been heard, then you know, there's, a, there's, there's a chance he might have won the thing. I think you know, with all the with all the evidence coming out now, you're you're probably a hundred percent correct. I, I do want to ask you. So let's say, let's say this because I see this will probably get in front of a judge at some point. Let's say this gets in front of a judge and the judge declares, "Hey, we really can't tell who won." What would happen then? Um, of course, obviously Georgia has sixteen electoral votes. That's not enough to switch it to to Donald Trump becoming president. But how would that work with say Kelly Loeffler? Uh, let's say David Perdue. How would how would that work well, then? I think, I think this analysis will not only get in front of a judge, probably several, because I can, I, off the top of my head, I can think of several ongoing cases where this information might be presented. That said, I am unaware of one of them at this late date that would actually alter the outcome of the election in Georgia. Um, an election case has to be filed within five days of certification, and so the Trump lawsuit that, that existed at the time would have been a proper venue to, to, to present this in, but you know that case is no more. And so I don't see a scenario where this analysis is, is going to have any impact on, on the presidential race or anything like that. The reason that I'm still engaged with this is because I want these problems fixed. I've been seeing this go on for years I've been seeing it affect races for years. I'm, I'm tired of seeing candidates have to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to get a bogus election overturned so that he can get a fair one. Um, you know, I just, I want election integrity and I've, I've wanted it for years and, you know, shining a light on these issues at this particular time while everybody's so interested in these issues, you know, I think is my best hope that we might actually get some change here and, and actually correct some of this. I mean, it's 2021. Having this stuff go on and having such sloppy maintenance go on is unacceptable. I mean, in the business community, running cast certification and, and NCOA processing, it's just a given. I mean, in fact, the Postal Service requires it for first-class pre-sort and, and for bulk mail. Um, you know, you must be in compliance with move update requirements, and one of the main vehicles for doing that is national change of address processing. So, I mean, it's just, it's ludicrous that our system is still so backwards and antiquated. The, the 1993 NVRA, it absolutely does need to be reformed. Georgia participates in a, an organization called ERIC, the Electronic Registration Information Center. And about half the states are members of ERIC, and what happens is they share a copy of their voter file with a hashed or encrypted uh, date of birth and social security number. And then the member states, um, 
you know, they have their data compared to one another. And, you know, Eric will check to see if, if there are people that are registered in more than one state. And they'll also provide NCOA services to the, to the member states. And what I think should happen is um, the, the 1993 NVRA should be amended and it should require that all states participate in ERIC or a similar institution. Uh, I like ERIC because it's an NGO. It's not controlled by the federal government. It's controlled by the member states. Uh, each state you know, gets to appoint someone to represent them you know, at ERIC and, and vote on their behalf. Uh, our representative is Jordan Fuchs. Um, so, you know, that, that definitely needs to happen. Um, the other thing that would be extremely helpful is if the Postal Service would allow long-term temporary moves so that, take you for example, you could have filed a, a long-term temporary move. Now, what happens there is the Postal Service will forward your mail, but they won't turn around and tell the folks sending you that mail that they need to change your address. So, you know, your address is still, you know, where it was at, at your home, but your mail's going to you, you know, at school. And so, you know, there are steps that can be taken to help fix this problem. You know, and the one I already mentioned is the Secretary of State checking for residency issues and proactively working to head them off. You know, we keep getting accused of Republican voter suppression, you know, but doing that isn't about suppressing votes. It's about making sure that the 100,000 folks that are in that situation can vote. Because, see, here's what concerns me. You know, we Republicans tend to be kind of a law and order bunch. So if I'm looking at that 110,000 pool of voters and I'm looking at the folks who did vote apparently unlawfully and the folks who obviously didn't, you know, I'm guessing that there's a lot of conservatives in that bunch who knew that they, they couldn't vote in their old county anymore and they had, they had messed up and they hadn't updated the registration so they couldn't vote in their new county anymore. So I think a lot of those folks just said, well, I guess I just don't get to vote legally here, so I, I just won't. And I've got to believe there's an awful lot of conservatives in that bunch. So, you know, it's very important that we fix these issues. I mean, if that 75,000 that was part of that bunch that didn't vote had actually voted, then that could have had a very material impact on the outcome of the presidential election. It un it un, it certainly would have. So I do want to get your your thoughts on real quickly on SB two hundred two. Uh, do you think that that is a good step in the right direction to election integrity? What's your view on that on that bill? I, I like I like aspects um, of it, and there's aspects of it that concern me. For example, the. Uh, you know, going, going to uh, the voter ID um, requirement rather than the signature match. Um, you know, we had a data breach a few years back where the Secretary of State, you know, accidentally um, gave, uh, in response to orders for voter data, they actually gave, gave out, accidentally gave out uh, voter data that had full dates of birth and, and social security numbers and driver's license numbers. And that breach appears to have been contained. You know, they, they almost immediately sent out uh, an investigator from the Secretary of State's office to recover all that data. Um, 
But, you know, I start thinking about it, and I'm like, you know, what if somebody still has a copy of that somewhere? And and then the other thing, too, is you can you can buy a lot of that information off the dark web. And so, you know, I still see a potential for, for possible fraud, even with that change. Um, the other... The other part of that that uh, I wish had happened is I wish that they had passed some uh, some protection uh, from 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 retaliation uh, in the challenge statutes. If you read twenty one dash two dash two twenty nine and two thirty, two twenty nine is where a voter in a county can challenge another voter's. Uh, right to be on the registration rolls at all. 230 is where a voter in a county can challenge another person's right to vote in a particular election. So what has happened is, you know, in the, in the, in the runoff, um, there were challenges filed um, to voters uh, that had told the post office they were moving out of state or to another county or what have you. And the Democrats actually started suing um, the people who filed those challenges and the counties that accepted those challenges. And I wish that our our legislature had done something to prevent that kind of bullying. Uh, you know, it's it's called lawfare, and you know it's it's the way that that the Democrats try to frighten and intimidate uh, election activists. So. I wish that they had passed some protection for that, but in general, you know, I, I like a lot of what they did in in the in the new law. Um, and it, it really kind of cracks me up to hear, you know, Joe Biden talking about how it's the new Jim Crow and all that kind of stuff when his own state's voter integrity laws are are much tighter than ours. They have no so, early voting, um, I believe, at all. Yeah, no, Delaware, uh, Delaware is such an interesting state. Well, well, Mark, thank you so much for coming in. Where can people find you anywhere to keep, you know, in tune if you have any more data that you release over the coming weeks and months, as I'm sure you probably will. Well, um, here lately, um, I've been posting about everything that comes across, um, into the voter GA group on Facebook. So that's a really good place to kind of stay up to date on what's going on with what Garland Favorito is doing. And, and I, I try to keep everybody in there posted on, on the stuff that I've been doing. So I'd recommend that. Awesome. Well, well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, folks, he just laid it out. He just laid out everything that Republicans have been claiming for the last couple of years. So I hope that there is some answering, and I hope that people answer for the lack of investigation. I hope people answer for calling many, many, many people like myself conspiracy theorists. And I, again, a special thanks to Mark for coming on and the work he's done. I know he's got many, I know there's some people who are upset with him for, for what he's pointing out. But thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Bring. This is not the end, rather the beginning of a movement that will carry my generation into freedom. Thank you, and I'll see you next time.
At Simple Mobile, you get the no contract advantage. Those other mobile companies make you think you're in control, but you're really not. They lure you in with shiny new phones and then lock you into long-term agreements. But Simple Mobile is different. You can get a 30-day plan starting at $25. You can also get the latest smartphones, or if you have a compatible phone you love, you can bring it. Just text BYOP to 611611 to see if your phone is compatible. It's the reliability you need when you need it. All on a powerful nationwide 5G network. With no mystery fees, no activation fees, and no contract ever. All for less money and no contract ever. 5G-capable device and SIM required. Actual availability and coverage and speed may vary. 5G network not available in all areas. 5G upload speed not yet available. Message and data rates may apply. Visit simplemobile.com slash privacy policy for privacy policy. Service plan required for activation. Terms at simplemobile.com. If you have diabetes, excess sugar could be causing damage in your eyes that you might not even notice. So be proactive about your eye health and take charge of your sight. Learn more at nowic.com. Brought to you by Regeneron.